0: Okay, so Acts 4, 1-31, that's our passage. If you have a Bible or an app or um, one of the pew Bibles or chair Bibles, you can use those too. Um, here's what we've seen so far in Acts. We're, we're about six weeks into the series. We've, we've got nowhere close to the end. Uh, we're still very much at the beginning here. But what we've seen so far is just this remarkable upward trajectory, everything from Acts chapter one to Acts chapter three looks great for the local church, uh, for the the church being spread out, the message of Jesus going forward. Everything's going well, right? Jesus in chapter one tells his disciples that he's going to send them out as his witnesses, starting in Jerusalem, going out to Judea, to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And that is the trajectory of the book of Acts. That's how Luke organizes this account of, of the church's history. Acts covers about 30 years of the the church moving outward. And uh, that's the the trajectory it goes from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then from chapter nine to the end is getting to the ends of the earth, which ends up being Rome uh, at the end of the book. Spoiler alert, if you haven't read the book yet. Um, But we're getting, we're going to see all that as we go through this. However, uh, Jesus tells them they're going to do this. Then he ascends into heaven and promises that he's going to send the Spirit of God to empower them for this mission. So chapter two, that's what happens. The Holy Spirit comes down, uh, descends upon his, his followers, his believers, empowering them for the mission that he has given them. And then that's basically chapter two, the the bottom half of chapter two shows us the community of faith that God is building through the spirit of God, how the people in the early church were committed to the apostles teaching, to prayer, to fellowship, and to radical generosity. And we kind of walked through all that a couple weeks back. And then chapter three, we see this miracle happen that creates quite a stir in the city of Jerusalem. And John and Peter are going up to the temple. They see a guy who's been uh, crippled, there sitting, begging for money, and they'd say, "We have no money," which must have really gotten him excited at first. But then they said, "What we do have, we can give you, and that is in the name of Jesus. Get up and walk." And he does. He gets up and walks. God heals him, uh, and and that is just an awesome thing, right? Like there's so much excitement, there's so much joy in the city of Jerusalem. But one of the things that becomes painfully obvious as we read the book of Acts is that the happy times don't stay that way for for very long. Um, In fact, if we read the whole Bible, we know that followers of Jesus are not promised a comfortable life. And in fact, as followers of Jesus, we face opposition often to that. We know that that has happened uh, long before our time. We know that it happens to certain degrees in our time. And it's going to continue to happen until Jesus comes back in glory. But we don't see much of that opposition in the first three chapters. What we see it in chapter four, though, is that some people are pretty unhappy about this Jesus thing. And that's going to start to become kind of a theme throughout the book of Acts. We're going to see this quite a bit as we work through Acts, is that people as much as there's an amazing reaction towards Jesus, and in fact, the gospel continues to grow and grow and grow, there's also the counter response. And the counter response is typically brought about by the leadership of the Jews in this case, and then going out the leadership of different cities as Paul goes into them. But uh, the gospel starts to shake things up and that doesn't make everybody happy. So that's where we're actually going today. So welcome to church. You're going to get to see the, the sad part of the story, but not really. This is actually a pretty tame story by comparison to some other ones we'll look at, but here's here's what we're going to get into. Verse one, uh, I'm just going to read a little bit. We'll stop and talk as we, as we need to, um, but if we look at chapter four, it says this, and as they were speaking to the people, so they, in the context of the story is John and Peter, Peter and John, in Jerusalem by the temple after they healed this man who had been uh, paralyzed in some way or disabled in some way. They healed him and now they're preaching, right? We saw the last half of chapter three is Peter's message about Jesus to the crowds that were gathered. So as they're speaking, so they're still in mid sermon here, the priests and the, and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So we're just reading the story, right? This is what's happening. They're preaching, they're proclaiming Jesus. Some guys show up and they're annoyed. They're greatly annoyed is is how Luke describes it. And the group of people that show up are the priests. So these would be the guys that run the temple complex organize all the sacrificial system are very important in their, in their religious role for the people of Israel. The captain of the temple, he shows up. He's, he's basically the chief of security more or less for the, for the temple complex. Uh, you have a lot of people showing up. You need security. So the captain gets to be the guy who runs the security team. And then the Sadducees, now the Sadducees—that's an interesting little group of people that we can talk about here, because most of the time in the Gospels, when we read Jesus's ministry uh, stories, it's the Pharisees who typically show up and cause a stir. The Sadducees do show up occasionally, once in a while, but mostly it's the Pharisees that bother Jesus. Here it's the Sadducees, and why is that? Well, the text shows us that the reason that these these people came up is because they were annoyed that John and Peter were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And the Sadducees were a group of, of people who would we would call them theological liberals today. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in the, in the supernatural. They didn't believe in the afterlife or what the Bible would call the resurrection of the dead, meaning that once we die, we actually go on to live, continue to live, and ultimately Christ will bring our bodies uh, back up with us when he returns. Um, but the Sadducees didn't believe in any of that. The Pharisees did. The, the Sadducees did not. So uh, the way that I was taught in Sunday school to remember this is that the Pharisees are not fair, you see, because they keep adding rules to everybody. And the Sadducees are sad, you see, because they don't believe in an afterlife. Um, and they are they are. You like that, Chris? You like that? You can use that at kids' club next week. Um, so they're sad because they don't believe. I don't actually understand the Sadducees, to be honest, because they're, um, like, what's the point of any of this if you don't believe in an afterlife? But whatever. They're there. They show up. And uh, this, basically, you have the Pharisees and Sadducees are the two main groups of religious leaders, basically political parties, more or less. I mean, that's how we would kind of understand the concept is that there are two groups that make up a whole, much like Democrats and Republicans kind of make up the majority of our political leadership in Congress. Uh, you'd have the Pharisees and Sadducees that make up the, the group, um, but this is only a particular section of it that show up in this case. Okay, verse three, let's keep reading. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already Evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of men who came to, uh, came to about 5,000. Okay, so the, the trajectory of growth for the church has gone from 120 before the Spirit comes. After Peter preaches at Pentecost, now there's 3,000. Now we're up to 5,000 men. So they've stopped counting women and children because there's too many people. So now they're just counting like heads of household that's a huge number of people. Okay. Uh, so there's a, this is obviously a big deal that can't be ignored. Um, but if you're like in charge of a, of a city that mainly runs on this religious system. So there's been this major upturn in or, or uptick in people going from 3,000 after Pentecost, to now 5,000 men in uh, this, this whole deal. And that, obviously gets some negative attention from the leaders. So they arrest Peter and John. Um, They arrest them because it's almost nighttime, and they're not allowed to interrogate people at night. It's against their law. They didn't follow that law with Jesus, if you remember. Um, They arrested him at night and then interrogated him overnight. But in this case, good on them. They're actually following the rules, and they hold them in a a cell somewhere, probably in the temple. They probably have some Little holding cell. Um, It's not this really terrible prison situation, but they just detain them for the night and then um, wait till the morning. So, verse 5: on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. So, this is the whole group showing up. The Pharisees would be made up in here, the Sadducees, the different parties, whatever, but the, the people who are in charge of Israel, they show up into Jerusalem the next day. And they're gathered with, verse 6, Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. So that should tell us that um, these are the same people who just maybe a hundred days, three, four months ago Killed Jesus, like we're directly responsible for killing Jesus. That's who Caiaphas and Annas and all these guys in the high priestly family. They were the ones spearheading the crucifixion. So that should tell le- readers of the Bible that this this could go very badly. Right? This could be very very bad. This is the group of people who have come together um, to talk to Peter and John. And says verse seven. When they had set them in the midst, they brought them in and they put them in the middle of this they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? This meaning healed this dude by the beautiful gate outside of the temple. By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today, Concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, and by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. So that's only part of the speech here, but let's stop and talk about what we're seeing so far. This is an amazing moment. The Holy Spirit empowers Peter to do something that he would, by nature, and any of us would be, by nature, too afraid to do. He boldly faces their opposition. And he says, you guys want to know what's happening? First, I love that he asked the question. Basically, he's asking the question, why are we here? Like, are we here because a a crippled man is healed? Is that why we're here? This, is, this seems kind of crazy. Like, shouldn't we be happy that this happened? It's, it's very remarkably close to what, what Jesus had with the Pharisees after Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath day. And they, they got all mad at him because he healed a man on the Sabbath day. He did that actually a bunch of times just to make them angry, and it, it's awesome. Um, he was just like, I'll just wait till the Sabbath just to do this, just to tick you people off. But, but the Pharisees aren't fair, you see. So that's, that's why it all happened. All right. I'm going to keep going back to it, Chris, just because you made that, that scoff. All right. Um, so, so Jesus has this happen to him. They're now, the, the, the apostles are now dealing with this as well. Like, are we really here because of a good deed done to a crippled man? But if you want to know how it happened, I'll tell you. So this is where he goes into this. It's, it's Jesus. It was by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified— this, this, which is accurate because they all did crucify Jesus. This is the group of people who did it. It's not their ancestors. It's them directly who had crucified Jesus. And so Peter's going, you guys crucified this guy. God raised him from the dead. And now because of him, this man is standing before you well. Verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is, no, there is salvation rather in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men which, by which we must be saved. So Peter says to them, you guys crucified this Jesus. Jesus was raised by God from the dead and, and he's the one who heals this man in front of you. But then they actually apply the scriptures to this, which is incredible. Super bold. They they quote, or they paraphrase roughly, Psalm 118. Uh, I believe it's, I can't remember which verse it is in there. But Psalm 118, which we read for our call to worship, says that the stone that the builders rejected will become the cornerstone. That, that psalm, that verse in that psalm, is telling us about Jesus, being rejected by the leaders who are supposed to be building with God's help, building this house of Israel. and yet they are rejecting the very one who is to be the corner, the one that holds it all together, the one who is built upon and keeps the structure going. They rejected this, this stone. He says, "The stone. Jesus is the stone. That was rejected by you, the builders. You guys are supposed to be doing the building. You've rejected the one component you need the most, which has become the cornerstone. And then they preach the gospel to these men, which is, again, super bold. They say there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among people by which we must be saved. This is it you guys have this opportunity to come to Jesus and respond to him. Peter is so bold in this moment because he's not only is he asking the the hard question, why are you interrogating us over something good that happened? And not only is he going, well, the guy you killed like three months ago, he's the one who God raised from the dead and he's the one who healed this guy. And then not only that, but then they apply the Old Testament scriptures to dunk in these guys' faces and go, you, you are the ones that the scriptures say would reject the cornerstone. And then he says, but come to Jesus. You can still come to Jesus. He's the only one who can help you. I love it. Now, verse 13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, yeah, and they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So both Peter and John, of course, had been with Jesus, physically were one of his 12 apostles and walked with him and were there at the crucifixion scene and all those things. Um, but the, the, the leaders of Israel are looking at these two men and going, how is this possible? These guys are common dudes. They're just normal people. They're not educated particularly. And yet they're just slam dunking us uh, here. And they're just astonished. They're they're speechless in many ways. They, they don't know what to do with this. So verse 14 says, I like this little detail Luke gives us. He says, but seeing the man who was healed, standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. (laughs) So the guy that they healed was there. We just find this out now, but he's been there this whole time. Like he shows up with John or maybe the next morning walks in, although he couldn't have done that the day before. He walks on in and he's like, I'm with these guys And he's standing with them in solidarity. And they see this man that they have seen every day for probably close to 40 years at that temple gate. And they're going, we can't can't say anything about this. This is like, it's in front of us. The, the, The presence of God's work is right there. They have nothing to say in opposition. This is very similar to what happens in John chapter nine with Jesus healing a man who had been born blind, where the, Jesus actually disappears from the story after the miracle, but the, the Pharisees drag this blind guy into be interrogated and like, how have you see? How can you see now? And he's going, I don't know. I, this guy told me to do this, and I can see, right? But it, but as that story goes on, this guy, this blind man who had been healed, is more and more bold, emboldened to go, oh, it's Jesus who did this for me. You guys, do you guys want to worship him too? (laughs) You know, and that's basically what's happening here is this guy who is healed is like, I'm standing with Peter and John. They did the work of God in my life and I'm with them. And so the Pharisees, Sadducees, this whole group of leaders have nothing to say. So verse 15, when they had commanded them to leave the council, so they kick them out for a bit, they confer with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name, in the name of Jesus. So this is the only thing they can come up with. They kick these guys out of the meeting, the whole group kind of confers together. They talk it out. They're trying to figure out how to spin it because they are politicians, after all. That's what politicians do. They spin things. They're like, how do we make this happen so that it doesn't keep getting more people to follow Jesus? We can't deny that it happened. It's obvious to everybody that it happened. Um, So all we can really come up with is to tell these dudes to be quiet and to stop talking about Jesus. So... Verse 17, uh, excuse me, 18. They called them in and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Uh, so real, real quickly, how they answer is No. We're not going to listen to you. We're not going to do that. And, and the reason that they go there is because they're like, you guys are telling us to do something that God told us to do. So why are they saying here that God told them to do this? Well, it's because Jesus told them to do this and Jesus is God, right? So Jesus being God tells the disciples, you're going to be my witnesses. And that's what you're called. That's, that's what you're called to do, to go and make disciples disciples and to make more people understand who I am. And so they're going off those orders, and now they've got these other orders from the, from the human leaders of Israel saying the exact opposite thing, which is don't talk about Jesus. And they're going, we can't do that. And they actually throw it in their, their court at first. They say whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to listen to God, you get to judge. So in other words, he's, they're basically saying... Uh, yeah, so if God says something and you say the opposite, who should we listen to? <laughs> They're just using that logic there. And and then they say, we cannot but speak. In other words, we can only speak of what we have seen and heard. So they say, no. Now, this, this leads to an interesting little side note here. Um, how do we as Christians unpack this in a, uh, in light of the rest of Scripture, right, that teaches us, and so much of Scripture teaches us that we are to respond to our leaders and our authorities. We have Romans 13 uh, as a great example. We've got many others. There's, there's passages in Titus and, and Timothy as well that tell us as Christians to follow our leaders, and yet here, these guys are deliberately not following their leaders. And I think you, you probably know the answer. It's already clearly there. But what, what we're seeing here, and I think it's worth noting, is that there is such a thing as authority in the world. I know as individual Americans, we, we don't like the idea of authority, and that's okay, like, whatever. But we do have to acknowledge that authority does exist on various levels. And I think we all understand that intuitively. Um, but just let me give you some biblical categories. We see uh, the, the call for husbands to lovingly, in a Christ centered way, lead in their marriage. That's Ephesians 5. We see parents, Ephesians 6, being called to lovingly lead their children. We see elders called to lovingly lead their congregations in the local church. We see employers called to lovingly lead their employees and governments are called to lead their citizens. So we have this biblical structure of leadership in the world in various facets of life, but here we see Peter and John looking at the authority that is theirs, their governing authority, and saying, no. So this leads to a great question. Where do we draw the line? And the line is clearly what they're saying. When when what we're being told to do goes against what God tells us to do, we listen to God and not to them. That's not complicated, right? And in fact, in the next passage that we're going to look at, we're going to see an example, a clear example, of where a wife should not have submitted to her husband because the husband was leading her into sin. We see clearly there there's places in in the Bible and in just life where children maybe led into sin by their parents. And in that case, if those Christian children love the Lord, they say, well, mom and dad are trying to make me sin. I can't go there, right? We see that obviously in the context of eldership too. If elders are leading a church into a sinful place, like standing up and saying the Bible's not true, don't listen to it anymore um, or something like that, then that's where we all duck out, right? We go, ah, we'll find some other place to go same goes for human authority and the government, right? If the governments call us to something that clearly, clearly, biblically is contradicted by God, then we follow God. That's just, that's not a real controversial thing. It's just how it's always been for forever. And we see it in this this example here. So the, 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 Apostles are saying no, because God told us to speak. You're telling us not to speak. We're going to listen to God in this case. All right. So verse 21, when they had further threatened them and let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for they were all praising God for what had happened, because the, the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So these guys who are running the nation of Israel are going, we're going to threaten you some more because you're saying no to us. We're not told exactly what those threats entailed specifically. Probably if we catch you doing this, again, we're going to beat you up or, or it's going to be much, much worse for you but they just threaten them and then let them go because there's nothing that they can point to to punish these guys. And the reason that they can't punish these guys is because of the people. The people were praising God for what had happened. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the whole council, are they're, they're very good politicians. They know what to do to keep their power. And so they're like, eh, the temperature's not right for us to beat these guys up. So how about we just let them go let it cool off. We'll see what happens. Okay. So that's where, that's where we see them being let go. Now, verse 23, we got we to get to verse 31. When they were released, they went to their friends, that's Peter and John, and they reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, The place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Okay, so here's what we're seeing. We're seeing that John and Peter get let go and they immediately go to, it says, their friends. They go to the people in their life who are believers, fellow Christians. We don't know who this whole group of friends are. We don't know how many there were. We don't know if this is just the twelve if this is 120 of that second kind of tier of initial people, if it's beyond that. But just logistically, if there's 5,000 people, 5,000 men in the church, there's no way every person in the church was at this meeting. You don't have space for that. That's why they were meeting in the temple day by day because that was the place that could facilitate that kind of group of people. It does not say they went to every single Christian in the city. They went to their friends, and they reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, when their friends heard what, what was said to them, what did they do? They lifted their voices together to God. They prayed. So we're seeing here how the, how the early church embodies the, the, the value of prayer into their situation. They are gathering with other believers to pray. And the summary of the early church back in Acts chapter 2 tells us that they were devoted to prayers, right? That's to the prayers. And so this is just an example, like we've seen examples of lots of other things they were devoted to um, throughout this book being on display here. This is an example of what we mean by the church being devoted to prayer. It means that they come together in, especially in these difficult seasons in this moment of fear and, and concern over the threats, they're going to come together and they're going to pray through this. And so the section actually, as we, most of what we're reading is the content of their prayer. It's like a, a transcription or a summary maybe of what they prayed. And that summary teaches us some things about prayer that we can emulate and model in our lives as well. I just want to point out three things in it. And then, then we'll try to wrap this up. Um, The first thing that we see about this prayer that makes it um, worth our attention is that this prayer is firmly rooted in the sovereignty of God. So here's the question. Why would we pray if we didn't have a God who could actually do something for us? That's the point, right? We go to prayer because we believe and know the nature and character of God is sovereign. And he's able to do what he wants. Doesn't mean he's going to do everything we want, but we go to him with confidence because he can do anything that he wants. And we see that, that truth clearly here in the way that they start the prayer is sovereign Lord. This is how they address the Lord Jesus in their prayer. Sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. That God is sovereign over all. That word sovereign just means he can do anything he wants. He's completely in power, completely in control. He does anything he wants, and he made everything we have on this, in, in this universe. The heavens, the earth, the sea, everything that's in them. Their prayer is anchored and rooted in the sovereignty of God. And our prayers ought to be anchored there too. Otherwise, what's the point? We pray to a God who is more powerful than us, who has more knowledge than us, who actually knows the end from the beginning, who, can, who, can, who has not only knows it, but has set it into, into existence and is directing it through his sovereign hand. And that's who we go to pray to as they did. The second thing I want to point out here is that their prayer is aligned with God's word. Look at what they do. Verse 25 and 26, Who, God, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. They pray as a congregation, as a group, as a group of friends. They are praying through Psalm 2, 1 to 2. That's where the quotation that they pull out is. God said these words through the mouth of their father, David, God's servant, by the Holy Spirit. So God is the one saying this, but he's using David as the human agency to say it. That's what the whole Bible is, okay? God's word through human beings. God used human beings to write these words. He didn't dictate everything. He used their personalities. He used their situations. He used their writing styles. But he's the one who's guiding and directing every word through the Spirit. And they acknowledge that. And they're praying in alignment with God's word, right? They're going, Psalm 2, 1 to 2 says that the the nations are going to rage. The people are going to plot in vain, in meaninglessness, the kings of the earth are going to set themselves against the rulers, who, and the rulers are going to be gathered together against the Lord, rather, and against his anointed, his Messiah. And then they go, Oh, that psalm says that, and that's exactly what happened. Because in this city, there were gathered together against Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod and Pontius Pilate. So those are kings, essentially. Gentiles, the Romans, the peoples of Israel, the leaders of Israel, to do what your hand and your plan had predestined or predetermined to take place, meaning that Jesus was going to be crucified and killed for our sins and then raised from the dead. And if you continue to read Psalm 2, that's where the psalm goes. It goes from, yes, the Messiah, the anointed one, is going to be applauded against and and struck down, but ultimately is going to be victorious. So they're praying in alignment with the word of God. They knew the Psalms. They knew the Psalm. This Psalm in particular was about Jesus. And so they applied that as they prayed. So that's the second thing we can learn from is that as we pray, it's, a whole, it's really easy to pray ping-ponging prayers of just wherever our thoughts are And that's okay in in moments and and in times of crisis and all those things. Like, sure, there's nothing wrong with praying in the moment as things come into your life. However, I would would argue that it's better in the long run for us to pray through Scripture because we're hearing what God actually says about things and then praying in alignment with it. And they can be bold here and pray for what they're going to pray for, which is boldness, because they go, Psalm 2 promised that this would happen. So now we can be bold because Psalm 2 assures us that this is all in God's hands. Let's not be so freaked out. All right, so that's number two. Their prayers is aligned with God's word. Prayer, uh, number three, their prayer is getting to a request, but the request is for more boldness. Look at what they say in verse 29. Now, Lord, look upon their threats the threats of the leaders of Israel, look at those threats and grant or give to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand and heal and do all these amazing things. Give us boldness while you're working and and help us in this. Their prayer is requesting more boldness Notice what it's not asking for. It's not asking for protection, which is really remarkable considering that these guys just got arrested and then interrogated by the people who killed Jesus. You would think that that would be kind of first, was protect us from this. That's not what they request. Now, I want to be clear here. It's not wrong to pray for protection, okay? Uh, The Psalms tell us, give us lots of examples of praying for protection. It's not inherently wrong to pray for protection in in moments. It's not wrong to pray for what our daily needs are. Jesus tells us as he teaches us to pray, to ask for our daily bread. Those are not bad categories. This is just a specific prayer in a specific context for their situation. But I think what it is wrong for us is it's not wrong to pray for protection unless we're only praying for protection. We need to pray for boldness too. We, we need to pray for both of these things. And I think it's actually really sad. Looking at my own life here, I'm just looking at myself. I'm not blaming anyone here. But for moving from first century Christianity to 21st century Christianity, this has almost completely flipped. Completely. It's like, we, I have not heard anyone, myself included, pray for boldness in a long time. But what I hear all the time is, keep us safe, give us comfort, give us protection, make us secure. Are those things wrong to pray for? No. But if there's a lost and dying world out there with people in need of Jesus, I think we might need a little boldness too. And that's what the disciples saw. They saw the mission. The mission is the mission to make Jesus known in the world. And they were praying at all costs to be bold to bring that mission about i think we do need to take a look at ourselves in that not saying that we we have to just pray that we get you know slaughtered in the streets or something right we're not praying for that but we are we ought to pray for for god to empower us and help us to do what we need to do so as we've as we've seen that is the model of their prayer as they pray in light of God's sovereignty, they pray uh, with, with, the, um, with the scriptures in view, and they pray for more boldness to accomplish what they want to do. And I want to just take us very quickly to 1 Peter 3, because I think Peter, being kind of the centerpiece of this story, has a lot of interesting insight to give us as he writes another letter or writes a letter; he's Acts is just being written about the events. But as Peter writes a letter to a church to help them, this is probably 25 to 30 years after Acts chapter 4 that Peter writes these words. I think the insight he gives us, being the center of this story and experiencing what he experiences, can really help us. So he says this: verse uh, chapter 3 of First Peter, verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Which is an interesting question because that's literally what happened to him in Acts 4. He was zealous for what was good and he was still dragged in front of these people. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, which he was, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled but in your hearts always honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense, or and, and that's the that's word that comes from the Greek word apologia, which, which is where we get apologetics from. And so the idea is to have an answer. And some translations choose that route, to have an answer or a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do so with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. That is not just a throwaway. That's intentional. Because you're not going to be heard if you don't have gentleness and respect as you address your beliefs Paul Peter's point here is this, that our, our suffering can happen whether we're pursuing righteousness or not, but when that suffering comes, we are not alone in it because Christ also suffered once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. And I think that so many times we fear suffering when, in fact, it's, what God uses in our lives to help us be a witness to those lost and to be sanctified in the process. So I'm not saying we should pray that suffering comes. Of course not. I think that would be kind of crazy and it's, that would be sadistic, right? Um, you, heard, you may have heard of Christian hedonism by John Piper. No one's ever heard of Christian sadism, okay? We don't go that route. But, but to pray for God to use what comes even if that suffering seems unwarranted because Jesus suffered for us and with us, we can be bold in the face of it. And that's what we're seeing the apostles go is their boldness in the face of threat because they know Jesus is with them. And they know know that Jesus loves them and that he has a mission for them to accomplish and he's gonna let them accomplish it in his way, and his time. And it's true for you and me. We still have the same spirit among us we have the same Lord who saved us and died for us. And so we should pray and ask the Lord for help to be bold, to speak his word as the opportunity comes. We don't have to be ridiculous. We don't have to be obnoxious. But when we are asked, we should have a response and be bold with that response. That's, the, that's what Peter gives, gets us to in his letter. That's what we see modeled in the book of Acts. So, I just wanted to leave it it with this. Let's not be so afraid. Whatever comes, God's in control and he has a plan for his church to make him known throughout the world and we get to be a small part of that and we get to celebrate in it. Even as things may come and backlash may fall on us, we get to be with Jesus and on mission with him. Okay, let me pray. Father, thank you uh, for... This morning, thank you for this passage in Acts. We thank you, God, that you have showed us through the examples of your apostles how you provide and care for them in the midst of all these things. I pray we would take these things to heart, that we would respond as you lead us to respond. Uh, and God, that you would, that you would help us um, to know when to speak and what to say when those opportunities come. I pray now that as we respond in our singing and our partaking of the Lord's Supper, that we would be uh, just moved to worship you with glad and joyful hearts today. And that we would remember that you died once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God and help us to celebrate that truth today. In Jesus' name, amen.